Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Jack Baca, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the sixth lesson in our series of 10 lessons as we study the book of Revelation here at the Village Church in Rancho Santa Fe. This study is being conducted for the week of October 18, and we are looking at Revelation chapter 8, verse 1 through chapter 11, verse 19, a fairly significant portion of text, but I think we'll be able to get through it in the next 20 minutes or so. First of all, just a word about where we are in the book so that we have a sense of the context and, in a sense, where we are in the flow of the story. In the first three chapters of Revelation, we have been told that John has an amazing vision from Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the risen and victorious Son of God. We have also learned that Jesus has a message for the churches, seven churches in particular, but we're meant to understand it's a message for all of the churches. This message is a message of encouragement, a message of correction, and ultimately a message of hope and strength as the church undergoes very serious persecution in the first century. Over the next several chapters, essentially chapters 4 through 18, we have a grand panoply of images that describe the eschatological woes, the, the terrible things that will happen in the end times as a, a prelude to God's ultimate victory and the establishment of God's kingdom and the renewal of God's rule in earth. All of this vision, all of these different pictures and images are not meant to be understood as relating to particular people or events of the far-flung future, but relating to events of the present day, John's present day, towards the end of the first century and perhaps even moving over into the beginning of the second century. Let's think a little bit more about what these particular chapters say to us then as we begin to work through the first five verses of chapter 8. The very beginning of chapter 8, we have the seventh seal opened. Last week, we talked about six seals that were opened that uh, brought about great destruction of the, on the earth, uh, signifying all the terrible things that happen when people rebel against God. And now the seventh seal is opened, but when this seal is opened, there is only great silence and stillness. It is as if this is the prelude now to the beginning of, of the end itself. And then we see an angel who appears with a golden censer. This gives us a glimpse into the worship that goes on in heaven. And it's meant to be a glimpse for those on earth still as they see what is happening in heaven. That God is still God, that there is still worship of God, and that ultimately God's power and God's plan will prevail. The incense of the censer that the angel holds represents the prayers that ascend into heaven, prayers from God's people for strength, for courage, for deliverance from the evil and the suffering that they are facing today. This is a, an image that, that says to the people that God is indeed hearing their prayers and will respond and will act accordingly. The suffering continues, though, for God's people as well as for all people, and we're meant to understand that through this suffering, 
The people are going to witness to the power of God, and God will ultimately accomplish his purpose. God does not take away suffering from the people then, nor from people now, but God works through suffering to accomplish his redemptive purpose. Then in verses 6 through 12 of chapter 8, we have trumpets blaring. Trumpets were a very important instrument of the first century world. They signify many things, perhaps a call for the people to assemble, a call that a battle is about to begin, perhaps a warning, perhaps a signal of victory as a king ascends to the throne. The trumpets sound and we understand that God, the king of all things, is appearing. God is present. God is also signified in many different ways, with eyes, with spirits, with stars, with angels. All of those things tell us about the power of God to see everything, to be everywhere, to have power over everything. Sometimes people try to assign specific uh, events, specific actions, even specific people or situations to all of these images, but they're really not meant to be specific other than to speak about the, the character of this amazing God whom we worship. Then we have plagues, of course. We remember that there were many plagues in ancient Egypt before the time of the Exodus. Those plagues that occur in John's vision remind us that when plagues are going on, God is getting ready to do something. Then we move into chapter 9, first 12 verses, and we have locusts that appear. Remember, the locusts were one of the plagues that occurred in the time when God was delivering the people through Moses out of their Egyptian slavery. Locusts are a very, very serious insect in the Middle East. They still sometimes appear incredibly destructive swarms that wipe out entire crops, sometimes even entire herds. The locusts appear now as a sign of the devastation that occurs in the world because the people of God have rebelled against God and they are persecuting God by persecuting God's people and by trying to, to stamp out the message and the truth about Jesus Christ. We have a mention here in this section of the fall of evil angels. That also is another standard image, if you will, from Old Testament theology. In some sense, you have in the Old Testament this idea that the devil is the chief of all the angels who rebels against God, and he takes some of those angels with him. Then, of course, God has his own angels, and those armies of angels do battle, but we know who's going to win that final victory. Notice that the locusts were given the power to destroy. They were allowed by God to destroy great things. And, and this is one of the major issues that Revelation addresses for us, and it's a major question that you and I have today. Why does God allow bad things to happen in the world? Well, here in Revelation, we see that, in fact, God does allow these things. Not that God is powerless to stop those things. Not that God does not understand the suffering that those things bring about in our world. But Revelation tells us that God is doing something bigger, something much more permanent and longer lasting, something, in a sense, more important than the suffering that's going on in the present age. God is cleaning. God is restoring and renewing. God is destroying destroying the evil that would destroy all of life itself and even creation itself. 
God is destroying anything that is going to stand in the way of the goodness that God wants. This is how Revelation understands the fact that God allows these evil things to happen. We have a name here in this section of Revelation, the name of Apollyon. That was another way of saying the name Apollo. And it's interesting that in the late first century, the Roman emperor Domitian used that name for himself, the name of a god. Domitian wanted people to think that he was a god. And again, that was the problem, one of the major presenting problems for the first century church, that the, the Christians were being forced at, at, at gunpoint, if you will, at, at the pain of losing their lives, they were being forced to worship the emperor as God. But of course, they couldn't do that. So here we have a play on that word Apollo. The locust is a symbol of Apollo. Apollo has some power. Apollo's doing some terrible things in the world. But ultimately, Apollo, the emperor Domitian, is going to lose his authority because God has ultimate authority. Then in chapter 9, verses 13 through 21, we have even more pictures, more stories about what God is doing in the world. We have uh, what some have called demon cavalry, uh, these, these amazing armies of horsemen that are destroying everything. Remember that uh, signified for first century people, the, the Parthian people who made great use of mounted archers on cavalry to withstand the power of the Roman Empire. We have discussion of 200 million warriors, 200 million. That's a number that was actually beyond the imagination of first century people. And we are not meant to take that as a literal number. When you have huge numbers uh, in Revelation, frankly, anywhere in Scripture, it's meant to, to signify everything, everywhere, amazing numbers beyond our comprehension. There is repentance discussed in this section of chapter 9. Uh, like Pharaoh in the time of the release of the Hebrew slaves from, from Egypt, uh, the, where people are called to repent, to change their minds, to turn toward God, here that same call goes out, but people do not repent. They, in fact, continue further in their rebellion against God. Interesting that when Christians were brought into a Roman court and, and asked to, uh, to claim that, that the emperor was God, they were literally asked to repent, to change their minds about this business of Jesus, to, to give up this idea, to recant, maybe would be a good way to say it, to recant their faith in Jesus Christ. But of course, they could not do that. In fact, by the Christians' presence there and by their witness and testimony to Jesus, they were asking the Romans and all non-believers to recant and to repent of their misbelief and their misguided rebellion against God and turn toward Jesus. But of course, they would not do that. So we continue on, chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Uh, these chapters, in a sense, form an interlude, if you will, between the sixth and seventh trumpets. Uh, chapter 7 that we looked at uh, last week showed us a picture of the church, the church as it lived on earth, and then the church of those who had gone to be with God in heaven, what we call the church triumphant and the church uh, militant. The church militant is that church that stands up for God as it continues to live on earth. The church triumphant are those who have already triumphed over death because of the power of God, and they live with God forever. Now we see in chapter 10 and 11 the church 
as the prophets and the martyrs of God. The church as the prophets, those who speak for God, who witness, who testify to who God is and what God is doing in the world. And then those who, because of what they say, because of what they know and believe, will suffer for it. This section is related to the 12th uh, 12th chapter of Daniel. If you go back and read the 12th chapter of Daniel, you'll see a lot of similar imagery and similar ideas there. Clearly, that's where John got some of the information for this great vision that he was given. John hears seven thunders, seven great peals of thunder, but but he's not allowed to say what they mean. Uh, We're given to believe that John knows what they mean, but he can't say exactly what they mean. This was actually typical of Old Testament prophecy, that sometimes the prophets seemed to know more than they were letting on, but they could not reveal or fully describe everything. This is a way of saying that sometimes we sense what is going on, we, we catch a glimpse or a little piece of the truth about God and the nature of our lives, but we can't quite put our finger on it. We can't quite put it all together. There is still something mysterious, something bigger than we can understand about the way of God in the world. And that's what we think these seven thunders that cannot be interpreted or explained are all about. Then we see also in this section that that John eats the scroll. That's a fascinating image. He's not literally eating a book. But by eating the scroll, we are meant to understand that that John completely internalizes the message of God. It's not a happy thing always to, to eat a book, is it? And it's not always a happy thing in the sense of glib or lighthearted. It's not always a happy thing to understand what God is doing in the world. It's a very heavy, serious responsibility that the prophet has to speak God's truth into the world. It's not an always easy thing to do. It's not something that people always want to hear. In fact, oftentimes they rebel against that message. Then in chapter 11, we see even more imagery. We see two witnesses, capital W witnesses, if you will. In a sense, they represent the whole church. They represent the fact that the church, those people who believe in Jesus Christ, are meant to be Jesus's prophets. They are meant to speak the truth of God into the world. Prophecy is is one of those topics that Christians often get very confused about uh, today, as we have over the centuries. Prophecy is not so much a discussion about the facts and figures, the particular things that are going to go on in the far distant future. It's It's not like fortune telling. Prophecy in the Old Testament was all about speaking the truth of God into a a current situation of the time. For instance, it would be prophetic uh, if a king of of ancient Israel were to say, we're giving up our worship with God. We're giving up uh, on on the business of taking care of orphans and and widows and aliens and, and, and following God's law. And then a prophet would stand up and say, that's wrong. The right thing to do is to take care of God's people. That's prophesying, speaking the truth of God into a current situation. Well, that's what the prophets are doing in this great vision that John has. They are standing up and speaking the truth about who is God and how God is to be worshipped and how people are to live as the result of God and the, and the, the actions of Jesus in their lives. These prophets then also become 
martyrs. And that's actually literally what the word martyr means, is a witness, someone who gives a testimony. The martyrs of the first century were those uh, who refused to recant of their faith. They refused to back down. They refused to say, no, we were, we were wrong about Jesus. And clearly uh, the way that the, that the pagans worship God, the way that the Roman emperors want us to worship them, that's all the right thing to do. They couldn't do that. They wouldn't do that. They lost their lives because of it. But in losing their lives, they stood up for that truth. And they actually proclaimed that truth in a very, very powerful way. Some commentators want to talk then about the, the ministry of martyrdom. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? The ministry of martyrdom. That some people are called in the circumstances of their lives actually to give up their lives for the faith. It's a ministry because it, it upholds the truth of God. And because it convinces people of the power of God, that, that God's power is so great that it even leads some people to give up their very lives as a result. Someone once said that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That when someone gives up their life for the cause that they believe in, in this case, the cause of God in the world, that it convinces others to believe and to take up that truth and to stand fast and, and hold on to it. And so you and I need to be thankful for those martyrs of the past who have refused to back down, who have instead proclaimed and preached the true message about the love and grace and healing renewal of God in their lives. We have many people to thank who have given up their literal lives and many millions of others, of course, who have given of themselves short of giving up their lives uh, to, to proclaim that message. All of this is, is part of what's going on in, in the whole book of Revelation, and all of this is, is part of what's going on in these particular chapters. And then finally, let's come to the last few verses, verses 14 through 19 uh, of chapter 11. We have the seventh trumpet. This seventh trumpet sounds, and we have these beautiful hymns, these beautiful songs that are sung that speak of the power of God. God is taking up his power. God is reigning in the earth. He is the king of all the earth. It seems opposite of that, of course, to many people in the first century, especially the Christians, because Rome holds all the marbles, if you will. Rome has all the power. Christians are being killed left and right. The, the, the church is struggling to gain its footing. And yet in the midst of all of that, John sees this great vision that the church is doing exactly what God means for the church to be doing. It is standing up for the truth. And John sees that in that, the church one day will be victorious in proclaiming that message. And in fact, that is what went on. That's what happened in the real history of the early church. The church hung fast to its witness and to its claim about the, the, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And slowly at first, and then it began to pick up steam, people began to accept that idea. They saw the love that Christians, uh, the, the Christians exercised, that Christians had for each other and for people even outside the church. They saw how Christians were faithful and giving and kind and truthful and, and how they exercised their, 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 uh, their actions in life and in ways that actually gave life to other people. And be, people get, began to see that Christianity was the way to go, if you will. And ultimately, of course, one day the Roman Empire would fall and in its place would rise the Holy Roman Empire, where people accepted and believed the faith. 
That's a really quick walk through lots of parts of, of Revelation. I'd encourage you to read through the written notes that are provided uh, on our website. I'd encourage you maybe to go back and listen to this as you're reading through the book. But remember that Revelation is all about the fact that God wins, that being faithful to God in Jesus Christ is the right way to go, the good way to go, the way that ultimately will prevail. So whatever you face today in your world and your life, hold fast to your faith and continue to learn from Jesus and to follow him. That's the only way to go. Until next time, God bless.